Well, God's Word is given to us this morning from John 10, verses 1 through, uh, we're going to actually read through 21. Uh, If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word, as you're able. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The very word of our Lord. Pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, you are indeed the good shepherd who is the door to abundant life with you. Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us in this special way through your written word. What a gift it is to us in this life. Help us, Lord, I pray, to listen to your voice this morning through the preaching of your truth. I pray, too, by your spirit that you would give Pastor Addison zeal for you and boldness. Give him a humble heart and clarity of mind and speech as your messenger, and that we would all go away knowing and trusting you a little bit more fully. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's, it's good to continue with you all through our series in John as we continue to look at the I am statements of, of Jesus, the ones that he makes describing himself to us throughout the entire gospel of John. And this week we find ourselves with a double portion of I am. Though a couple weeks ago, Andrew, Pastor Andrew preached on I am the door. And so this week we're going to focus on Jesus' statement where he says, I am the good shepherd. And of course, in this passage, he is 
talking about leading sheep. He uses the sheepfold and, and shepherding imagery because it's so pertinent to the lives that you and I lead. So lest you sit there and think, I am not a sheep, I don't need to be led, I'm not like them, I hear that they're very dumb creatures, I'm not a dumb creature, you know, I've had those thoughts myself, but in this passage, we see that we too are sheep. Here, I will use an example from a study that I read from a few uh, years ago. There was a study where they took a bunch of people and they put them in a big room and they said, walk at whatever pace in whatever direction you want. So they kind of meandered around at whatever pace, whatever direction they wanted. And then they took two people and they said, we would like for you to walk in the same direction at this speed. And then they entered into the room and eventually in every single study, Every person in the room walked at that same speed, cadence, and direction. It took various times, but ultimately, everyone saw somebody else who looked like they knew what they were doing, just two people walking in the same direction at the same speed, and subconsciously or consciously, they followed them. So part of our human condition, we like to follow. We will follow just about anything there are shepherds that abound in our culture. Think, you know, think about the internet. The internet has offered so many ways for us to be connected to so many different things and beliefs and people. We follow folks on Instagram and through Snapchat and Facebook. We like those things. We subscribe to them as our own. In a book that I have read recently called Strange Rights by author, theologian, and journalist, which is not something you often say together, uh, Tara Isabel Burton, she said this. She names three of these um, what she calls civic religions, so uh, religions that we practice in society. We may not name them as religions, but this is what she names them. She says there are three for us to be aware of. I'm just going to read from from a portion of her book. She says, uh, the first one, social justice warrior. With the utopian vision, these people believe all of society is a script that must be rewritten and that all Goliaths, especially racism, sexism, and anything that resembles bigotry must be struck down, usually through cancel and call-out culture. Techno-utopia society. This group is less visible but more financially potent. Coming from Silicon Valley, this mindset holds firm beliefs in human potential and technological progress, intending that the latter will eventually perfect the former. Radically individualistic in scope, they hope to transcend the limits of humanity through technological innovation. Our bodies are broken and weak. We must just hack them to make them better. And then the third one is atavism, or relating to or characterized by a reversion to something ancient or ancestral. So looking back at something and wanting that today. She said this is most popularized by Christian nationalism today. While adherents in this group might espouse a belief in the Christian God, there is also a strong Darwinian leaning which appeals to a nostalgic masculinist view of what the world should be. The world has been overly weakened by social justice and feminization, and the world that we face is ultimately meaninglessness. What, it is, what is needed is to restore the hierarchical tendencies built into our DNA. We are God's chosen country and people. We need to start acting that way. In each one of these, there are things that we will grab onto, things that we can affirm and agree with, 
but they are ultimately offering themselves as shepherds for us to follow. And they will lead us down a path, and if we are not careful, we'll follow them. See, all of these, and there's many more. She goes on to list uh, a dozen or so of them in her book. It's just the tip of the iceberg, but all these uh, meet four things that you and I, as created beings, are looking for. Purpose, meaning, community, and ritual. And each one of these has parts of those. So it gives us this sense of, of life and fullness and, and reason for why we do things and what we do. She continues in her book. She says, All three of these new faiths claim a powerful, transformative vision of the world, rooted not in transcendent meaning, but in human thought, feeling, and will. The techno-utopians dream of a world in which we are all rendered optimally efficient machines. The social justice utopia of a liberated world, the atavist vision of a purifying cataclysm, that will bring us beyond the tyranny of a civilization altogether. All these are potential ends to the art of post-liberal history. Only time will tell which one will win. So, there are many shepherds for us to follow. There are many beliefs in this world that you and I can espouse to. And if we're not careful... We will buy into some of these false shepherds. Our passage this morning, we see Jesus presented in history through the Bible as the one with whom only all four of those things that were made for, meaning, purpose, community, ritual, come together. And they don't only come together, but they're there for our benefit we may glorify the Lord and benefit in a relationship with Jesus. Those other false shepherds, they will lead you to destruction. They will leave you as soon as you can't make them any money. But the good shepherd, he's not a good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. It's not one amidst a lot of shepherds, good shepherds. He is the one true and only shepherd that we are called to follow. So we have to recognize our sheepiness. We have to recognize that we are prone to wander. But we need to keep our eyes focused on the only good shepherd, which is Jesus. And in this passage, Jesus uh, brings up three things that distinguish him as the good shepherd. So if you're asking the question, who will I follow? What shepherd will I follow? Jesus gives you three reasons why he is the one to follow. And the first is that he can be trusted. We see this at various points throughout our passage. Jesus can be trusted as a shepherd. And he trusts, he's trustworthy because he leads his sheep on a true path. We see this throughout this passage. Jesus is wanting to lead the sheep not into danger. He's not wanting to lead them to places that are desolate with nothing for them to eat or no place for them to rest, but he wants to lead them to true pastures, to green pastures, where they can feast on food that is nourishing, where they can drink through streams and brooks that are refreshing Pastures where they can be safe and protected from the elements and, and the, the, the various uh, animals that want to attack them. 
There's great language in our Bible. If you have one, get it out. We're going to look at Psalm 23 for this same thing. This is a Psalm of David, starting in verse 1 of Psalm 23. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. So a shepherd leads his sheep to the green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So as the good shepherd, Jesus is the one who leads us into paths of righteousness, paths that are good for us, paths that build our character up, paths that are for the namesake, for the Lord's sake. He's the only shepherd that will lead us not to a place that he wants us to necessarily be, but a place where we need to be, a place that can fill us up. Those false shepherds cannot do that. So he leads them on true paths, but he also goes with them on these paths. He walks with his sheep. As he compares himself here, he does this a couple of times, and we'll see that, but he compares himself to the hired hands here who... As soon as, just verse 12, we'll just read it and see what it says. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So because the hired hand does not care for the sheep, when danger arises, he flees. But Jesus as the good shepherd goes with his sheep. He walks through the treacherous terrain. He fends off those uh, animals that may want to take the sheep and scatter them. He stays with, he regathers them as they are scattered. Sometimes in nooks and crannies are far off from the rest of the sheepfold. He will seek them and bring them together. And he will stay with them. We know what some of this is like because of uh, the modern-day shepherding that still exists in parts of the world. I was reading an article about this in Israel where they uh, get up super early in the morning to gather the sheep in the sheepfold, and they lead them on these paths. And these aren't just straight paths, like we have straight aisles and, and roads. I mean, these are paths that are winding and sometimes up hills and down hills and across creeks and through areas that might be infested with wolves and other animals. To be a shepherd is a hard job, and it's dangerous. But Jesus, he goes with his sheep on that path. And the third way that we see Jesus as being our trustworthy shepherd is that he has all power and authority. In verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Just a quick note there about verse 17. You know, the language can sound like it's conditional for this reason. The Father loves me. He's talking about being one flock, one shepherd, and laying down his life for that flock but this isn't conditional. The Father doesn't love Jesus just because he laid his life down. The Father loves Jesus because he's his son. 
And because he's his son, he delights in his self-offering, his following of the Father's mission and vision for his people. He delights in the fact that Jesus could be the one to sacrifice himself for the people. And Jesus enjoys that approval of the Father by taking his life up again. We'll talk more about the sacrifice in our second main point. But the point being here is that Jesus has the authority. This shepherd has authority. He is the one who is before all things and through all things and in all things hold together. He's the only shepherd that we can trust with decisions in our lives because he is intimately involved in the fabric of this world. Jesus proves he can be trusted. Think about why you trust somebody. Family member, coworker, neighbor. Trust them because over time they've proven reliable. Maybe with information. Maybe they know parts of your story that are, are hard to share with other people and they'll listen to you. They'll sit with you. They'll walk through those things. Perhaps maybe they've uh, come to your rescue in a moment of crisis. And so you're able to trust in them. There's lots of reasons why we extend trust to people. But ultimately, we do it as followers of Jesus because trust has been extended to us through the work of Christ. Christ came and died for us and he earned our trust as the one who sacrifices for us. There are not many people, things, or beliefs in this world that will sacrifice for you in the way that Jesus has. And so as followers, we extend our trust because we've been trusted. We've been given grace. And so we extend that in our own lives, not naively, but yet we still extend trust. And we trust in the good shepherd because he's capable. So the second thing that Jesus points out is what distinguishes him as the good shepherd Remember, not a good shepherd, but the good shepherd, is that the good shepherd lays down his life. Here, Jesus uh, introduces two uh, specific ways in which we um, see these things. He's comparing himself again to the hired hands who flee from uh, their responsibilities as overseers of the flock. And we have to do some work to remember why this is a radical statement. That statement in verse 11 where he says, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. See, in John 9, we had a, a blind man who was healed by Jesus. Jesus comes and heals this blind man. And the Pharisees, the leaders of um, Judaism at that time, those who were looked to as leaders, who had institutional knowledge as leaders, the people who were supposed to be leading God's people, they would not accept this. They would not accept this miracle that Jesus performed. They continued to ostracize this man, to push him out, to question Jesus' actions. They did not see what was happening here. Instead, they are blind to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And there's even more context we have to reckon with. So when Jesus uses this language, I mean, this isn't the first time that Israel's leaders have failed to use their power for good, but rather abused it. And we'll get, that, get to that in just a second, but I want us to take a note here about that abuse. 
I mean, the Pharisees were abusing their power. They were emotionally or spiritually abusing the people that they were called to lead, maybe even physically abusing them. And this is something that we know because of statistics that many people in this room or hearing this message have witnessed or faced, maybe victims of abuse. So just wanted to take a moment and tell you two things. One is that we are here to listen to your story, to hear you, whether it's Pastor Andrew or myself, the staff or the elders. We want to be a, a place where it's safe to, to expose those things. So please, if you've gone through any of that, please let us know. And the second thing is that we see in the scriptures that God does not stand for abuse of his people. He doesn't stand for this abuse that the Pharisees were committing. He doesn't stand for the abuse that the leaders of Israel back in 600 B.C. had over their people. So we're going to see this in Ezekiel 34. If you have a Bible open there, we'll be there for just a few moments. Here it's about it's 600 B.C. Israel is in a really desperate place. They are being led into exile because they have not done what God has called them to do. And more specifically, the leaders have abdicated their responsibility to to lead the people, to shepherd the people, and they have abused that power. We'll read in verse 4, as the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, he says, The weak you have not strengthened, he's saying this to Israel, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. So we pick up on some familiar language. Jesus intentionally is using a similar language in our passage to drum up this idea that this is not the first time that Israel's leader has not shepherded in the way they were supposed to. And God won't stand for it. So in verse 11, he enters in. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. He's going to rescue them from the mouths that were not feeding them, from the people who were powerful over them and not leading them to the green pastures, but leading them for selfish gain. God steps in and says, I will not stand for this. I will lead them. I will shepherd you. And then in a really remarkable addition or twist, verse 23, I'll start in verse 22. I, God, will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. So God says, I, as Yahweh, will come and lead my people. But David will be set up as the one shepherd to leave them. So God's both looking backwards and forwards. He's saying David's the shepherd. He's the king who rules over the people. But one day a greater David will come. And that David will lead God's people. He will rescue them. He will fulfill the mission of bringing everyone to come and know him, that there'll be one flock and one shepherd. 
So Jesus here in John 10 makes this remarkable statement. He says, I am that good shepherd. I am both Yahweh and the greater David. I am the one who is going to lead the world. I am the one with whom all of this makes sense. All of it culminates in me. This mission comes to a head in Jesus. That's why he is the good shepherd. So when he says that I'm going to lay down my life, they can't fathom that. They thought the Messiah was going to come and rule a military power and get rid of the Roman occupation. They thought that they were going to become the rulers of the world in the way that Rome was and that other rulers had been. But instead, Jesus, claiming to be both God and man, says, I am going to lay down my life. That is how we win this mission. That is how the rescue plan comes to a hold. Jesus, the good shepherd, comes to lay down his life. And this was confusing for the Jews. We see that both at the beginning and the end of our passage, they did not understand what he was saying. It caused division amongst them. But Jesus is the one shepherd with the one flock. His mission culminates in this truth that he is the good shepherd. And so I said that there were two things that Jesus says that distinguish him as the good shepherd. We saw one that we just get this feel that he, is, he can be trusted. And we see that in our text. But he says that he will lay down his life. But then he also says that I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. So that's the third point, that Jesus, the shepherd, abides with his sheep. He abides with his sheep, meaning he is with them. He knows them and they know him. There's two parts to this abiding. First, it's, we're going to hone in on these two things. The first one is the power of knowing the shepherd. The power of knowing the shepherd. So we know him. We know his voice. As sheep who are a part of his flock, we can recognize his voice amongst the strangers. Remember, in the parable, he says that he'll come through. Uh, the gatekeeper opens, this is verse 3, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So this is a powerful thing, a benefit to us as sheep amongst Jesus' great flock. We can recognize his voice and follow him. And it's amazing what that does for us. So we learn about the shepherd, but we also learn how to shepherd as followers of Jesus, we are often shepherding other people. Oftentimes we call pastors and those who are in the church under shepherds. But the reality is that we're all under shepherds. We're all shepherding people in God's flock. And so by knowing God and knowing Jesus, the good shepherd, we can learn characteristics of what it means to shepherd. This is the way one commentator put it. So that when Jesus described himself as the shepherd, he revealed many important aspects of what he is to us. But at the same time, he also revealed what he, we should be to others. 
We're all shepherds, if we are believers in Christ. To a greater or lesser extent, we all have been given an oversight of others. Do we exercise our responsibility as Jesus exercised it? In the family, in business, in the affairs of the church, in government, or in other areas? Do we show Christ's self-sacrifice and sympathy? Are we faithful? Whether we are or not, we may improve our service by reflecting on the characteristics of the good shepherd. So what are some of those characteristics? Like the author said, Jesus is faithful. He's hardworking and diligent. He's patient. He's a good example, self-sacrificing. He's moved by love. He's humble. He's pointing to the Father. He's engaging. He listens when someone needs to talk. He challenges when there needs to be a loving challenge. These are all characteristics that you and I can have as we shepherd other people in our lives because we know the good shepherd and we can follow his voice. So there's a power to that. And the second power that we get about the shepherd abiding with us is the power of being known by the shepherd. See, the good shepherd, Jesus, knows our name. He knows who you are. First, the false shepherds of this world don't know your name. They don't know anything about you. They just know what you give them. A follow, a like, money, prestige, statistics to help them win an election. You give them more than they give you. But Jesus knows your name. He knows your life. He knows what it means to be lonely. Because you and I are lonely. Because his friend left him in the end. He knows what it means to be ridiculed for your belief in him. It's a great John 15 passage. Don't be surprised when the world doesn't love you. It didn't love me. He knows what it's like to be ridiculed for that belief. He knows what it's like to struggle with relationships. He knows what it's like to search and and find people who are longing for purpose and meaning, for community. The Lord, the good shepherd, knows his sheep. That's a powerful statement because there's nothing else in this world that wants us to follow it that knows us in the way that Jesus does so there he proves himself as the good shepherd you see when you follow a false shepherd they'll wear you out they'll run you into the ground They'll lead you into danger and they won't protect you because like the hired hand, they'll scatter. When push comes to shove, they cannot stand for you. They will not guard you or protect you. False shepherds, they want more than they give, but Jesus as the only one good, great, and true shepherd, it's him who we can trust because 
He enters into our world. He goes with us. He leads us to where we need to be, not where we want to be at times. He sacrifices himself, fulfilling the mission of rescuing God's people. He knows us and truly knows us. And so we ask that question, who are you going to follow? We all have sheepy tendencies. Tendencies. Who will you follow? The invitation is to follow the good and great shepherd, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus, our great, good, true, and only shepherd, the one with whom we find our meaning in life, image bears, given dignity and worth, our purpose of, of living for something beyond ourselves, but something that points to, to something greater. And of course, Lord, you bring community not all uh, thinking the same thoughts, but on the same journey, bringing comfort to one another through the Spirit. And of course, the practices, the rituals that we have of gathering on Sunday, of praying together, feasting together at the table. Lord, we're so thankful for that work that you have done in our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continue to extend that grace, that invitation to us to be a part of the one flock with the one shepherd, Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.